This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. And co-presenting this edition, I'm Alison Lachie. On the back of Africa Climate Week and ahead of COP27, this month's episode of Farms Food Future is all about climate change in Africa. COP27 may be all about delegates convening to set ambitious goals, but in this episode, we're looking at all sides of the story. We start with updates from across the continent as we catch up with our strategy team and our regional specialists to talk about climate change and IFAD. We take a quick trip around Africa through conversations with activists from the continent. In Egypt, we learn about a group planting fruit trees in urban areas. In Kenya, we hear from a podcaster who's bringing African voices to the front of the climate fight. And we get to hear from our rural youth advocate from Rwanda, dancer and choreographer, Sherry Silver. We look at an IFAD-supported project in Egypt that provides solar panels to small-scale farmers. And we wrap up our series on research and impact assessment with a discussion on climate adaptation. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. You can subscribe to this podcast by your favourite podcast platform. And please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lecce here with Brian Thompson in Rome. With COP27 right around the corner, we're talking to some of EFAD specialists to find out more about their goals for climate change and expectations for COP. Joe Puri is the Associate Vice President of Strategy and Knowledge at IFAD. I caught up with Joe to learn more about this work. I asked her, what exactly are EFAD's goals and why do they matter? Adaptation is essentially the ability of people, of institutions, and of countries to adapt. That means recover, rebuild, and essentially sustain themselves, even in the context of shocks to the system that are climate-related. But these shocks are not just, you know, one-off events like the floods that we're seeing in Pakistan. What climate change also means is it changes the level of variability that we see and the amount of uncertainty that you have to deal with, it becomes really high. So adaptation is really the ability to really sustain yourself in the face of this uncertainty. Resilience then is very closely related to climate adaptation, but resilience is not just related to shocks that are immediately related to climate. For example, the energy crisis that we are seeing today as a consequence of the Ukraine war is also amplifying a lot of the vulnerabilities on the ground for people. But those energy shocks are interacting very closely with the climate shocks that we are seeing, and it creates essentially a perfect storm. So resilience is the ability of households to essentially deal with all of the shocks that they're dealing with and not just climate ones. And then innovation, of course, is the ability to really bring on, at least in the context that people are living in, new ideas, new thoughts, so that we can just become far more resilient. What this means essentially is that IFAD as an IFI, as an international financing institution, needs to be far ahead of the curve when we are advising governments. So not only do we give loans to governments, but we also advise them on what are the trajectories that they can use when they are planning for their nationally determined contributions or NDCs. And we also support countries in designing their national adaptation plans. Now, so this becomes really important. Um, We incorporate, we now require all of the investments that are designed for our client countries, so that means the member states that we serve, to to be not just climate, safeguarding climate and the environment that we work in. So it's really important because of the procedures that we use, which are called social environmental climate assessment procedures or CCAP, Uh, not only that we are safeguarding climate, but that we are climate positive. That is, we are adopting new strategies that are low emissions and climate resilient, because we also see the current crises, and that's a plural, um, as an opportunity to essentially help countries and the international space really 
pivot a little bit, you know, away from what has been business as usual. Um, this becomes a really important part of all of the investments, all of the country strategies or course ops that we plan, as well as each one of the investments that we take to the board so that we can ensure that countries are um, critically, but um, even if in small ways, really moving towards these low emission climate resilient strategies. My last comment on this is it becomes even more important given um, the rising amount of emissions in the world, our credibility, our commitments and credibility are not keeping, keeping in step with each other. So although the commitments from countries may be extremely ambitious, what is really important is to figure out as to whether they are likely to be achieved. And there is definitely a widening chasm. And as an international organization, IFAD has the responsibility to ensure that these commitments are met as well. Now, what is climate finance and why is it such an important pillar of EFAD's project? People, you know, use the same term for different things. And climate finance is essentially any kind of financial instrument, like a loan, like a guarantee, like a equity investment. They become very important for EFAD for two reasons. One, we work very closely with organizations that have been asked by the UNFCCC or the Climate Change Convention to work on climate-related goals. So this is the Global Environment Facility or the, the GCF, the, that is the Green Climate Fund and the Adaptation Fund. But many other bilateral donors are also coming into the climate space and they are really trying to um, get countries to take on commitments that are climate related. But the second aspect of climate finance is also very interesting and exciting, which is that it gives us the ability because now we are able to invest, say, in a, in a climate bond, right? We are able to, which means that we can go to the market, we can say, look, if you have climate related goals, why don't you invest in these bonds? And we are able to bring that money then to speak to climate related goals. What that means is that we have the opportunity to galvanize the private sector to come into this space. And that has been, the private sector has been the missing middle in the overall new and additional climate finance space. But the private sector, contrary to urban uh, legend, does not like to take on risk. It likes spaces where, you know, everything is well set and they have a very well determined rate of return on their investments. But when it's risky, they don't like to come in. So as a public sector institution, we have the ability to come in, take on first losses, take on that risk, but also create the environment of policy so that the private sector can really thrive and feel assured that they will get uh, returns on their investments. Sorry, actually, there's a third space where IFAD can and is playing a increasingly large role, which is in defining as to what is a climate positive investment. This has not been done extremely well. One of my key beefs with the overall international system as we have it now is that the MDB methodology, which is currently adopted by most organizations, including IFAD, is that we essentially look at parts of budgets and we say this is climate positive, this is not. That's extremely clumsy. It's um, It does not um, make us do due diligence on whether we are achieving the goals that we set out for. And it only looks at money inputs. It doesn't look at outputs or impact. So I think in all of all three of these spaces, IFAD has a very important role. And these are the way we are designing projects as well. So for example, we are designing a large multi-country project in Africa, which is bringing in the private sector that can then on lend, they put conditions on their on lending that we will lend to smallholders and to households so long as smallholders will take on investments that are green. So no investing in fossil fuels, but you know, if you invest in, in solar panels, if you invest in rainwater harvest, then your loan will qualify. So these are green lines. Uh, we are able to then bring about a grassroots movement as well that can help to change the, uh, the landscape. And why is the UNFCCC so important specifically for EFAD's mission? So the UNFCCC is the UN framework, the United Nations framework for convention and climate change. And they are essentially the, the holders of these conventions, right? So they are the ones, the negotiators that get the Paris Agreement or the Kyoto Protocol to be signed. Now, the important thing is to recognize that the UNFCCC is essentially helping to coordinate uh, all of these climate-related agreements. But it's also really critical because the IPCC 
or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is also closely associated with the UNFCCC. And in fact, when we come out with the assessment reports on climate, it is the IPCC that feeds into this that tells us what are high confidence, medium confidence, and low confidence scenarios, and the UNFCCC has to bless it, right? So it's really important to then understand as to where, um, and because it is a UN convention, it is voluntary, definitely on one side, but like I said previously as well, credibility and commitments are all made to essentially an organization, are made for a treaty that is essentially coordinated by an organization such as the UNFCCC, which is of course, headquartered in Bonn. We'll come back to Joe later in episode 37 to hear her thoughts on COP27. Up next, we turn to our Africa regional specialists. You're listening to Farms Food Future, episode 37, with me, Alison Lecce, and Brian Thompson. Now that we know more about IFAD's work on climate, it's time to take a look at what we've been up to in Africa. Pate Sene is the lead environment, climate and social inclusion specialist for West and Central Africa. He tells us more about how and why Africa is so vulnerable to climate change. This vulnerability is driven by the prevailing low level of socioeconomic growth in, in, in the continent. Although the continent has um, contributed less to the global emission. So it is estimated between 2 and 3% from the pre-industrial area up to now. In addition to that, our financial sector, because of the risk, agriculture being the backbone of most of the African countries, uh, that, that agriculture is mainly rent-fed. Fortunately, also affect um, production, low production, and the consequences is low investment and, and financial sector not taking risk to invest on, on, on the island. According to you, what can be done to address the, the, this challenge? Do you think that mitigation or adaptation is the solution? So absolutely. When, when we talk about the African continent, first thing you, you, you think about is adaptation. So uh, when we talk about agriculture and the IFA sector, we have to design programs and policies where adaptation is at the center. So that value chain should take into account from the business as usual to an alternative. By doing so, I think we will be able first to build the resilience of small farmers uh, or transition towards low emission and climate resilient agriculture. So the low emission is more related to mitigation. So which is the second pillar of what needs to be done uh, in the context of climate change, uh, aside adaptation, it's very important to promote uh, renewable te- uh, technologies uh, so that we can energize the, the different value chain, modernize also the sector. The main objective of all of this is to support countries in fulfilling their global commitment and reduce their emission and keep the global warming, uh, you know, under 1.5 degree. And this is key as part of also the effort which Africa will be doing. But the focus would be should be more on adaptation and should go beyond only the program, but also support policies. Okay, Patty, I know that uh, IFAD is uh, supporting uh, some initiative in, in, in Africa. Uh, could you tell us a little bit what uh, what IFAD is doing to address this challenge in the region? Yeah, in West and Central Africa, uh, we've been, uh, you know, trying to pioneer innovation uh, since this region is one of the most vulnerable. So each region specificity, but uh, also vulnerability. And obviously, we need to come up with new innovation, not only like uh, adaptation, but also new financial instrument between 2019 and 2021. More than 37% of the IFAD investment in the region is climate focused. And this has been now pushed to 40% as a a target. So which means IFAD is really supporting from its own investment. On top of that, we have also the adaptation for small agricultural program, which is a, a flagship program of IFAD. We've been working with the global environment facility, the adaptation fund, and also the green climate fund to to come up with new solutions when when it comes to de-risking uh, our investment. In addition, also uh, we've been pioneering, um, you know. Uh, green finance to incentivize smaller farmers to adopt 
best practices, climate resilient or along the different value chain. And these are uh, these are the initiatives that, that gave those names of inclusive green finance, which is the banks, where, whereby we support the banks to provide loans at 0% interest rate against adaptation uh, and mitigation, but also supporting those financial institutions to build their uh, environmental and social governance. So these are a lot of revolution. And in the long term, we are looking at connecting insurance, banking system, de-risking small farmers so the private sector can be more confident to invest and support um, adaptation. According to you, what Africa can uh, should expect from this COP, the, the upcoming <coughs> COP27 in November? Yeah, no, thank you very much. I, in fact, COP27 nowadays, everybody is looking at implementation of the NDC. So the clock is ticking very, very urgent that the global leaders, but also the African continent has also to voice. And that voice is a call for action. And uh, adaptation and mitigation also require extra cost. So uh, there are incremental costs uh, that are related to uh, the way you need to adapt additional resources uh, that cannot be uh, you know, uh, finance from uh, conventional uh, resources, but require also this transfer of resources from what was promised. Private sector is still uh, can still play a key role. Fortunately, the private sector is still reluctant, and uh, this kind of COP is also the avenue to discuss find the right mechanism, the business environment to motivate and and incentivize the private sector. That was Pate Sene, Environment and Climate Specialist for West and Central Africa, talking to our reporter, Bakri Koulibaly. And if you want to hear more from us, please tune in to any of our 37 podcasts and over 350 reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. In episode 36, we learned all about South Asia. And in episodes 35 and 34, we were back to Africa with a look at renewable energy and nutrition. And next month's episode is all about EFAD's new president and also a look ahead to the upcoming biodiversity COP in Montreal. Up next, we'll hear from the other side of the continent with our specialist from East and Southern Africa. We're back. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lecce, and with me is Brian Thompson. We're catching up with Paxina Chileshi, IFAD's Climate Adaptation Specialist for East and Southern Africa. Paxina gives us an update on Africa Climate Week, and we'll also hear her expectations for COP27. So thank you. The impacts of climate change, I think, are becoming more frequent and also severe in the sense that we now have more access to information. So this access to information can be in knowing when these events are happening, and we also can see the impacts that some of them are having, or particularly in the media. We have, um, for example, the current drought in East Africa, where we have seen the livestock that has been lost and also the impacts that are there on the communities in terms of the, the field crops. Uh, also incidents of the floods and cyclones that have also occurred in Southern Africa and also incidents of pests. So in response, we do now have more regional downscaled climate models that give us this information in where we are able to predict what is going to happen at a very local level uh, in terms of the climate change uh, impacts. So this is a key difference that now allows us to see this more frequent and also the impact uh, of uh, climate change. So in response to what can be done, uh, I would say that something can be done at three levels. So first, for the governments, we do need more ambition in terms of the national determined contributions that the countries can make in limiting the greenhouse gas emissions. Linked to also the nationally determined contributions, we need investment plans uh, from the governments, giving us a good or robust pipeline of projects to be able to invest in. Secondly, I think the second level is to ensure that we do have enough financing to now finance uh, this good pipeline uh, of projects, particularly ensuring access for sensitive areas such as agriculture. At the third level, uh, I would add the perspective, of course, of the small-scale producers. These are at the front line of facing uh, climate change impacts and considering the amount of food that they produce. Smallholder, small-scale producers should be equipped 
and capacitated to be able to make the right investments in climate change adaptation production at the productivity level, but also in terms of their own um, livelihoods. For example, uh, our Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture program, we are investing in climate resilient infrastructure, so more efficient uh, irrigation schemes that the farmers will be able to use. We're also investing in rural roads where we improve the siting, the design, the construction of these roads to make them more robust and ensure that farmers can still have access to markets. We're also investing in uh, conservation agriculture techniques that allow uh, farmers to still produce even when they have variable rainfall. So um, reduced minimum tillage, uh, cover crops, and all of those techniques that they're able to use, uh, giving them also access to drought-tolerant uh, varieties of seeds. And so these are all uh, aspects that can be done to be able to ensure that we have resilient communities and also economies. We have just completed the Africa Climate Week. What were the main issues discussed and what should we expect going into COP27 for Africa and for the region? For Africa, climate change adaptation remains a key priority. So one of the key aspects that was discussed during Africa Climate Week is Africa looking forward to getting an agreement on a global goal for adaptation. This, as we know, uh, climate change mitigation, so the reduction of the greenhouse gases, we do have specific targets that have been set. And also this comes out uh, in the ambition from the countries, but we don't have the equivalent uh, for adaptation, how we're measuring adaptation. So this is something uh, that has been discussed and the African countries are looking forward to. Linked to that also, there's uh, emphasis, that with the emphasis on adaptation, we are already aware that there's less financing that goes into climate change adaptation. So African countries are also looking forward to seeing this increased investment. At the moment, even with the annual figures that we have or the projections of the needs in climate change adaptation, looking at figures of 155 to 320 uh, billion that is required. The African continent would require a significant portion of this. We know that there has been an increase in climate financing, so from 364 to 632 billion US dollars, but 61% of this was raised as debt, and only 25% is concessional financing. Only a meager 6% is grant finance, and this is what is the African countries are looking forward to increasing this figure of 6% to have more resources come in as grant financing as they have the urgent need of adapting to the changing climate. The other aspect that came out is ensuring that there is a balanced agenda uh, in, clim in the climate change uh, discussions and negotiations. So looking at mitigation, adaptation, but more importantly, implementation. We are aware that most of the adaptation financing is public sector financing. When we're looking at small-scale producers, we see them in IFAD as private entities. And there's a key role for the private sector to also invest in climate change um, adaptation to ensure that we have food security, but also resilient communities. That was Paxina Chileshi, climate change adaptation specialist, talking to our reporter, Linda Odiembo. Up next, we hear from the community members who are taking the climate fight into their own hands. And stick around to hear more from Joe Puri about what we can expect from next month's COP. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson, and with me in the studio is Alison Lecce. Everyone is calling COP27 the Africa COP. But for people from Africa, what does this really mean? We spoke to activists to hear about their work on the continent. We also asked them what they would like to see happen at this year's conference. Omar Eldib is just one of many activists fighting the climate fight. His group, Shigara, plants fruit trees in cities around Egypt. They want to combat food insecurity by providing access to free and nutritious food. They also want to improve tree coverage in urban areas. Seven years in, Shigara has planted more than 100,000 trees. I asked Omar why he decided to start this fruitful organization. Uh, on uh, 13 April uh, 2016, uh, I saw some uh, poor people uh, eat from uh, very tree, uh, and I was uh, so interested of, uh, of this. Uh, so I um, began to, to make uh, an initiative uh, for planting uh, fruit trees 
uh, in my city uh, to feed uh, more poor people uh, free food from uh, trees, fruit trees. The main three goals are uh, spread the culture of planting uh, fruit trees in streets, public places, uh, schools. Uh, second goal is to spread the culture of planting balconies, uh, rooftops with vegetables and uh, aromatic plants and some fruit trees. The third goal is to spread the culture of sustainable development and fighting climate change. So walk me through the process of your work. Where do you guys start? What kind of trees do you plant? And how do you take care of them after they're planted? Yes, uh, we choose um, some fruit trees, uh, which always stand uh, weather conditions, uh, like uh, olive, uh, some citrus uh, trees, uh, moringa or miracle tree. Those are the main uh, trees which we plant uh, because it's uh, they are good in uh, the Egyptian uh, weather uh, soil, and also uh, we stand uh, the low uh, consum- it has low consumption of water uh, and low uh, maintenance uh, after planting. Uh, how we care about uh, these trees? Uh, the success story of Shakarha is that we, we engage uh, people uh, to plant with us. So they, um, they take this plant as uh, their own, their own plants, because they plant with themselves. So they take care of, of them after planting. And also we, uh, we make a brief about uh, the planting uh, operation. Uh, how to uh, maintain and uh, do some pesticides, organic pesticides uh, and fertilizers uh, for trees. So we uh, engage them with the culture and knowledge. And how many trees have you guys planted? Yes, uh, estimation uh, more than 100,000 fruit trees uh, since, uh, yes, yes. Uh, maybe uh, 120,000, and maybe uh, by the end of uh, this year, we can reach uh, 130,000. You've talked a little bit about this, but how do the people and also the government of Egypt receive your campaigns? Uh, in the beginning, uh, I told you that uh, the culture was not as uh, as uh, nowadays, uh, but we talk uh, with, uh, with the government, uh, with uh, the community themselves. We reach every everybody to uh, to send this message of uh, spreading this culture. In the beginning of our initiative uh, on 2016, uh, I think after two months of uh, of uh, initiating this initiative, the ministry, the minister of environment, planned with us in uh, one city in Cairo, and uh, after that, uh, the, we made several collaborations with them, and. Uh, all governorates joined us uh, in our initiative. To turn to COP27 for a second, what message do you have for world leaders who are going to be meeting there this month? I think uh, the important message is uh, implementation because uh, now we, uh, we see uh, catastrophic things in many world, uh, many uh, countries. Uh, so I want uh, all, all people to be engaged in the climate change activities, we want to have action, not only talk and no conference only, because uh, all all uh, are talking about climate change and uh, no um, positive action happened in reality. Shigara is taking their work a step further with a campaign called 27,000 to COP27. They're planting 27,000 trees in Egypt and nearby countries before November. Up next, we chat with an activist and podcaster from Kenya. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lecce, and with me is Brian Thompson. Abigail Kima is a climate activist and podcaster from Kenya. Her podcast, Hali Hewa, is an eight-part series featuring conversations with African climate activists. It puts African voices at the center of climate discussions. This time, Abigail goes behind the mic to share with us her own experiences with climate change. 
I know when it comes to the conversation on climate change, we use a lot of numbers and statistics, which are important, I agree, but very few people can actually relate to it, if we put it like that. And I remember that time I saw a story about the northern part of Kenya, which is experiencing drought, and a community member was saying how they think this is a curse, uh, when it really is not, it's actually climate change. So I thought there was that aspect of climate education that was missing in the picture. And so I thought of going uh, the unconventional way of actually putting stories and like putting faces to the climate crisis, which I think is more relatable to any ordinary person who's not in this space. So one objective was obviously to educate the public. And then being that COP27 is happening in Africa, everyone is calling it an African COP. But then we, we only feel uh, that it's going to be an African COP if priorities of the African continent are going to be had and acted upon. So this was us also putting together voices of activists, experts, civil society organizations, where they're able to express exactly what they want out of COP27 so that we can say it was actually an African COP. And then finally, just developing advocacy tools out of COP27 that we can all use to call for further action to world leaders come COP27 and beyond. Who are some of the people you've interviewed and what do they have to say about climate change and COP? On the second episode, I spoke to a climate scientist called Professor Yuba Sokona, uh, who is from Mali and has been, uh, is the vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change. So he gave a very interesting perspective of what climate change looks like for Africa, how it's impacting us, why is it that we say we have contributed very little to the crisis, yet we are the most affected? Is it geographical? Is it that we are more vulnerable? Is it that we are not able to recover quickly after a climate change impact? For his call to action, he said, a well-articulated African narrative that goes beyond the mitigation and adaptation divide. And then on the third episode, we spoke to one Cindy Kobe, who's from an indigenous community here in Kenya called the Ogiek. Um, this was actually one of my most interesting episodes because uh, we don't, you don't get to meet many indigenous people in your walks of life. And having a conversation with her gave me such a different perspective of how it's been for them, being that they are the earliest inhabitants of a very big forest here in Kenya called Mount Forest. And this, they continue to face issues of deforestation because other people are encroaching into the forest, which was their like, source of livelihood. This is where they have lived. This is all they know when it comes to their homes. And she said she recognizes that the statements are important, but they don't mean anything if it is not accompanied by action. And is there anything that you learned about Africa, about climate change from talking to these people? Yes, um, especially on the science beat, that, that understanding of, because we, we, in our activism, we always talk about uh, Africa being vulnerable. So truly understanding what vulnerability means, uh, understanding that where we are geographically um, located has an impact. And then also thinking about our resilience in the sense that when when we are hit by a climate calamity, it's very hard, hard for us to snap back because we're still struggling to develop. And also understanding energy access from a perspective of development, being that now we have, in as much as we do have reserves for, for example, fossil gas, we have reserves for fossil fuels, I guess, um, understanding that now we actually have great potential for renewable energy, such as solar, such as wind, because of the vast lands that we have, and seeing it from a point of, if we want to develop as Africa, this is the pathway to go, this is where we start, and you know, we are looking at a very sustainable future for everyone. And now I want to backtrack a little bit, because you mentioned your community earlier. What are some of the issues that you have seen firsthand in your own community? Um, I'd say the the impacts of climate change that I have seen firsthand are water shortages for one. So early this year, uh, where I come from is quite fertile and we always received adequate rainfall. But then it got to a point where the county council 
which is what manages now our water back home, had to ration water. So you only get water at certain periods of the day. So either very early in the morning until around 1 p.m. And then now they have to ration that. Secondly, the change in weather patterns. So usually we plant around late February or early March. But then when we were celebrating Easter in April, no one had actually planted because it was really dry. So that is something else I've seen. And you, and you know, when we delay planting, it means then we'll be getting, if we were to plant, plant say, maize for two rounds in one year, it means we'll only plant once. So that means our yield goes down. Uh, something else that I've also seen is um, that lack of information from farmers. So you'll find some farmers planting when they sh- actually shouldn't because they haven't factored in the issue of, um, of climate change uh, tampering with the weather pattern. So you'll find either farmers lose their crops to lack of water or now excessive rainfall that actually washes away their crops. And coming from where I come from, agriculture is like the backbone of our community. Yes, we do have other economic activities that we practice, but they're all somehow tied to agriculture. Mm -hmm. What message do you have for world leaders that are going to be meeting in November? I guess we've been doing this for quite a while and they even started before some of us were born. I guess for me it's just truly, truly doing what you said you would do. And then making sure that there's a representation of frontline communities, if not at least have someone representing their voices at COP. It's gotten to a point where we can no longer, for some communities, they can no longer adapt to the impacts of climate change. Uh, last week, I was in a certain part of Kenya called Isiolo County that is ravaged by drought, and the situation there is so sad. It's honestly unbelievable to see people living like that. So you look at such communities and you wonder, what is there to adapt? There's really nothing to adapt. Like this place has become unlivable. So my desire is to actually bring such stories into these conversations because it seems as if we speak from one side of the story and completely ignore the human aspect. We completely ignore that the climate change is affecting real people with real lives. So ensuring that I am actually able to bring such stories and hoping that they have a space in these conversations and can influence influence world leaders to do something about climate change. And, and lastly, just urgent action. We really do not have time to, to wait. We really do not have time to wait. Yeah. You can listen to Abigail's podcast, Hali Hewa, spelt H-A-L-I-H-E-W-A, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Stay tuned to hear from one more advocate, our rural youth ambassador, Sherry Silver. You're listening to Farms Food Future, episode 37. I'm Brian Thompson in the studio with Alison Lecce. We're turning now to IFAD's rural youth advocate, Sherry Silver. Sherry's a dancer, choreographer, and creative director. Originally from Rwanda, she grew up in the UK, but spent many summers with family in Rwanda and neighbouring Uganda. She returns regularly as the founder of a charity there called Children of Destiny. Sherry is a strong advocate for youth in Africa, but why? I spoke with Sherry about the future of Africa and why she thinks youth hold the key to the climate puzzle. I'm passionate about empowering youth because I see their potential and their innovative and entrepreneurial mindset. All we need is the opportunities to make these things possible. And, um, you know, especially working with IFAD, I'm particularly passionate about young people that live in rural areas. So I spent a lot of my childhood, especially going back to Rwanda, my grandparents. I used to watch them farm. And I used to think it was an old people's thing. But when I actually looked at the reality and the future of farming, I realized that young people have a massive part to play. We can empower these young people to come up with the global solutions to end hunger and poverty since everything to do with food begins in these rural areas. And not to mention that there are about 1.2 billion young people right now, aged between 15 to 24, even though I'm Slightly older than that, I still feel like I think I should be part of this statistic because I still feel young. Um, but 80% of these 1.2 billion young people actually live in developing areas. So as you can imagine, um, 
we need to give these young people opportunities because there surely is a lack of support for them and their families. And so having lived and worked in Africa and seeing firsthand these effects of climate change there and growing up there, how do you feel about the future of young people in Africa and the future of climate change? Um, So I think that a lot of African countries can learn a lot from my country, Rwanda, you know, when it comes to taking steps to fight climate change. I always look at things in a very positive way. I feel like we can only get better. We can only become more innovative. By African leaders empowering and investing in young people, they're more likely to have access to more innovative solutions to the climate change puzzle, which can include, for example, how we produce food. Um, I just got back from Rwanda actually yesterday, and um, I was moderating for um, AGRF, an event called Go Getters, which I've been moderating for the past four years. And um, it's about these different young people coming from all over Africa and giving solutions on how we produce food, solutions on climate change, all these um, agricultural solutions, which I would have never come up with myself. And it just goes to show that if young people are empowered, there's a very positive future for Africa when it comes to the climate change battle. And now I want to shift to COP27 now. What do you think world leaders meeting at this year's COP need to know about youth and climate change and the relationship between the two? Yeah, so um, as I said earlier, youth will inherit all the effects of climate change. Yet ironically, youths are not among the majority of leaders that actually make the important decisions that will affect our future planet. So yes, we can make our own personal decisions as young people, such as our own personal carbon footprint. However, I want leaders at COP27 to know that youth can also be the key that they're looking for to the climate change puzzle. Politicians need to listen to them and actually bring them on the table for discussions on climate change. So it's not just about listening to young people and hearing their ideas and hearing their their concerns, but it's about politicians and world leaders giving the opportunity for these youth to come up to these, come up with these solutions. So as I mentioned, you know, when I was in Rwanda, we had all these young people from around Africa come together and give amazing, innovative solutions to climate change and to how we can produce food. So, you know, the same thing needs to happen at COP27. And, um, you know, young people are better at taking risks. Um, you know, we're innovative and we adapt to new technology quickly. And these are skills that will be critical to adapting to the climate change challenges. And also world leaders, please, you need to invest in programs and organizations like EFAD that understand how critical youth are and how, how important it is to put youth or youth as a priority. What message do you have for young people in Africa? Young people in my beautiful Africa, I understand you. And um, I believe that we are the future and we are the key. And, you know, we need to come together and let our voices be heard and, you know, don't lose hope. I can see that we are we are going in the right direction. We are getting more opportunities as opposed to um, so many years ago when we didn't have a seat at the table. And I actually want to thank IFAD for giving me a seat at the table where I'm able to stand before leaders and give the stories of these amazing young people that I've met around Africa in the rural areas and just be their voice. So um, they shouldn't give up. They should continue to be innovative. And, and I know that soon they will have more platforms where they can share their brilliant ideas. That was Sherry Silver, IFAD's Rural Youth Advocate. Up next, we look at a renewable energy project in Egypt. And stick around to the end of the episode where we talk to Joe Peary once more about the fate of this year's COP. We're back. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Alison Lecce here with Brian Thompson. In Aswan, Egypt, five years ago, Egyptian farmer Abdul Razik Mohammed wanted to change his irrigation system to something more cost and energy efficient. Abdul Razik applied for solar panels from the Sustainable Agriculture Investments and Livelihoods Project. Known as SAIL, the project provides solar panels to farmers as a grant. It aims to reduce poverty and enhance food security in 30 villages. 
The Egyptian government set up new lands to encourage people to move from overcrowded urban areas to previously uninhabitable areas to start new livelihoods. The project works with more than 280,000 beneficiaries and addresses other challenges like lack of education, modern infrastructure and disempowerment. Abdel Razik explained how solar irrigation provides him with a clean energy source and allows him to save on diesel and other costs. Hello, my name is Abdel Razik Abu Zaid Muhammad from Wadi Nukra, Al Hikma Village, Aswan Governorate. I have five acres. In the past, I used a water pump for irrigation that needed oil and diesel. Then I applied for the project to get solar panels, and I got 25 panels and a five horsepower motor. I switched to sprinkler and drip irrigation. Currently, the temperature is high and harmful to the crops. It's hotter. The weather is different, and that doesn't help the crops, especially in summertime like now. The weather in the summer, and especially this year, temperatures are higher than their average, and this harmed the fruit somewhat, as it did the mangoes and other crops, which were damaged by the heat. Currently, with regards to irrigation using solar energy, the spray moistens the atmosphere for the trees. This is much better than using the water pump in the past, as it was a source of heat itself, and this method of irrigation caused the roots to rot. Now the spray moistens the atmosphere and helps reduce the temperature, which helps the plants to grow better. In the past, oil and diesel deposits polluted the water, which was harmful to the crops. In addition, and as a direct result to the uncontrolled water pressure, many unwanted weed grew due to overwatering. Of course, sprinkler irrigation is different from the water pump system. Now I have been using solar irrigation for five years, and this has made a big financial difference. In the past, I used to spend 1,500 Egyptian pounds to get the necessary diesel, in addition to buying motor oil, and the expenses of maintenance and breakdowns. The growth of unwanted weeds was adding to these costs. All of that no longer happens with solar energy. Solar irrigation does not cost much as the cost of maintenance is negligible compared to the past. The spray also helps reduce the temperature of the planting as I mentioned. This is also better than immersing the roots with water. I am 61 years old, and I have three sons and three daughters, and they all live with me. Solar irrigation saved a lot of money that helped my family. That was Abdul Razik Mohammed sharing his experience with the SAIL project. Up next, we conclude our research and impact assessment series. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson, and with me is Alison Lecce. It's time now to join EFAD's Research and Impact Assessment Division in the final part of our series on doing development better. This month, we look at how the people in RIA measure our impact through climate adaptation. In podcasts 31 through 36, we've talked about in-depth assessments of projects from the Solomon Islands to Zambia and Tajikistan to India. I spoke with Romina Cavitassi. She told me that climate change is a key area of interest for IFAD, whether it be adaptation or mitigation. I asked her more about the importance of assessing climate change impacts when reviewing our work in communities in the developing world. We have incorporated into our uh, approach um, also the um, measurement of uh, what are the results of uh, climate-focused investments for EFAD. And in, um, for this reason, we have in our, in, you know, in the impact assessment work is conducted out of uh, about 15% of um, of the entire uh, number of projects that are closing every three years. Uh, for the three years period that went between 2019 and 2021, we have actually uh, conducted impact assessment for 24 projects. And of these, um, six projects were ASAP project. Now, the ASAP project, as you may have heard, is one key um, 
program of work that has been implemented by IFAD starting in 2012 uh, with the key purpose of helping farmers to adapt to climate change. And these six projects have been instrumental also for us to understand the evidence that is coming from the impact assessment uh, of, of these projects. When you are doing these um, impact assessments, how do you actually go about measuring the impact of IFAD's work on climate adaptation? Yeah, it's a rather complicated uh, process because we need to take um, many aspects into account. Uh, first and foremost, it's important to bear in mind that adaptation to climate is very, it's extremely context specific. So what is needed to adapt to the uh, kind of climatic risks and challenges in one region or area of the world uh, may be totally different than what is required in a different area. So for example, if you implement a project and then we go about uh, assessing the impact of that project in the Andean region of, uh, of Bolivia, where you deal with uh, very steep mountains, is um, obviously very different than uh, what is required in the Mekong River Delta in Vietnam or in drought prone areas in, in Africa. So with this in mind, um, what we do is, first and foremost, we uh, pay very good care um, um, in selecting the sample and making sure that we have a um, comparison group that is as similar as possible to the beneficiaries of the project, both in terms of socio-demographic and economic characteristics, but also in terms of uh, um, biophysical, agroecology, and uh, farming condition or um, income production uh, condi conditions, because in many cases we focus also in fishery, forestry, uh, livestock, and um, so agriculture in, in the broad sense. Or let's say rural development more in general, which is what we invest on. So to do this, we also include uh, georeference data in uh, sampling. Uh, so that we um, may take care also of the location-specific effects of projects. And um, uh, in addition to this, we also, uh, when we conduct the analysis, we incorporate also climatic variables that take care of uh, changes in and also variability and levels of temperature, rainfall, evapotranspiration, and many others, depending on what is required from the project. Again, for example, for fishery project, we also take into account the wind, waves, um, um, tide, uh, and many other aspects that are more specifically related to, uh, to fishery. And once we do that, we um, include in the questionnaire questions that are capable of capturing the adaptation-specific uh, aspects that the project promoted. So if the project promoted uh, watershed management, if the project promoted um, better fishery equipment, rotational plan for fishery, raising awareness uh, of the importance of uh, respecting the rotational plans, um, the sustainable forest management, whatever the project has promoted, we create questions, we include questions that are specifically related to the adaptation practices that have been promoted by the project itself. And by doing that, we uh, are able to generate indicators that um, measure the difference between uh, on those indicators, uh, the impacts that have been generated on those uh, aspects, on those indicators uh, for the beneficiaries compared to the control group. So what would you say are the, the, the most important findings you have from this most recent batch of research? Okay, so what we can say so far is um, that we are providing an important contribution to understanding better what works in terms of uh, um, adaptation, but also in terms of adoption of adaptation option, because that is also one aspect that we take into account. And this is important to say, because we shouldn't be taken for granted that if we promote something, 
people adopt whatever we promote or support. So one key step is first to analyze what is the, what difference do we make in terms of adoption rate of the practices or of the technologies that we promote. And then as a second step, what are those that, how do they contribute to productivity, to livelihood and to resilience? In this regard, we can say that in all the projects we have assessed, there is a good impact in terms of adoption rate of adaptation options, uh, which runs between um, a lower percentage for some of the for some of the activities that have been promoted. So the lowest um, impact is around six percent. But for other practices, it reaches out about, uh, about 70% for some of the practices. So that's just the adoption rate increase um, for our beneficiaries. And then we also see overall a very uh, good impact in terms of um, resilience, in terms of uh, production, and in terms of uh, economic uh, mobility income, which, which are all indicators that tells us the livelihood, we're making a good impact on the livelihood of our beneficiaries. Thanks to IFAD's Romina Cavitassi. And up next, we come to our final conversation with Joe Puri. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson in the studio with Alison Lecce. We return now to Joe Puri, Associate Vice President of Strategy and Knowledge at IFAD. I asked Joe about her expectations for this year's COP and how these goals have evolved from last year. What are the most pressing issues that you would like to see discussed at this year's COP as opposed to what was on the agenda at COP26? How have we moved on or have we? Yeah, really good question. So, you know, there's a paper that just came out actually this week and examined the commitments that are being made by countries as well as by the EU, for example, on the overall commitments that were made. And while on one side, it is a good thing to have a voluntary agreement because it gives countries flexibility, I think what the paper also lays out is that um, there has to be some tracking and tracing of these commitments. Now, COP26 was very much about the Glasgow Pact. Yeah, so um, one, it was coming at the back of COVID. It was really important to recognize as to what in the context of the COVID crisis and climate crisis we could get in terms of commitments. Getting those commitments from big emitters like China and India was really key and critical. Uh, Getting commitments on resources was really important. One of the key things that we find with climate uh, mitigation and adaptation is that despite the Paris Agreement, which said that there would be 50% new and additional climate financing going into mitigation and 50% of new and additional climate financing going into adaptation, the money has been hugely skewed. The latest report on this is that for every $12 that is for mitigation, there's only $1 that is raised for adaptation. And this is far more critical than you would think, primarily because adaptation is what helps developing countries really deal with the challenges of climate change. Mitigation is reducing emissions now, right? So that it helps to reduce global greenhouse warming years in the future. But adaptation is really urgent today. Otherwise, we lose people, we lose lives, we lose livelihoods, we lose we basically lose assets. Therefore, this gap is really important. And at COP26, one of the commitments that was made was that there would be a greater balance with respect to adaptation and mitigation financing, and there would be more resources coming to adaptation. There was also a commitment that was made with respect to uh, Indigenous people who are custodians of 80% of, of the biodiversity in this world, that there would be a fund that is set up with more than a billion dollars uh, supporting it. COP27 will be important because it'll be important to see to what extent have these commitments actually been borne out. You know, I I do think that in service of this overall um, goal, there is a public good to be had that is organizations should be tracking and tracing how many commitments have been made with respect to Paris and how many of them have actually come true. And I do think that COP27 will be the credibility COP. We will see as to whether implementation of those commitments actually took place and whether the people and the countries and the organizations that committed to going net zero, that committed to putting in resources, that committed to taking action on Indigenous people, on getting ensuring that there is 
the participation by um, developing countries in a lot of these decision-making, whether that is actually happening or not. So it will be a credibility cop for me. And what results do you want to see coming out of this year's conference? What I would like to see is whether those credit, the commitments that were made in Glasgow Pact were achieved or not. Um, to what extent were the actors who are committing to net, these net zero transitions are following through, whether we are seeing um, uh, discussions on two key lesser known but really key areas. One is loss and damage. So loss and damage is essentially the losses and damages that just cannot be compensated. Those that can be compensated is essentially adaptation. But the part of your losses and damages that just cannot be compensated for, for example, cultural values, cultural heritage, entire islands or entire nations or entire cities, losing them has a more than monetary value attached to it, right? It is a losing of our souls in some sense. So what is a, how can that loss and damage be dealt with? And that's what loss and damage is. And I'm hoping very much that there will be conversation on it. But the other thing that will be Coronibia, again, a lesser known aspect of the climate discussions, because Coronibia is really about making sure that climate is playing a really important role also in our food production and our food systems. And uh, last year for the first time, Coronibia was uh, discussed, but literally in a very marginal way at COP26. And the promise was that delegates would be pulled together uh, to do something about pushing that dialogue forward, the intersection between agriculture on one side and climate on the other. Um, and I'd like to see that come through as well. That was Joe Puri wrapping up our discussion on COP27. And that brings us to the end of Podcast 37. Thanks to our fabulous producer here in Rome, Francesco Manetti. Also our contributors that include Linda Odiambo in Nairobi, Bakari Kulabelli in Dakar, and Mohamed Adam in Cairo. And everyone else who's worked on this program. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efad.org forward slash podcasts. Next month in Podcast 38, we'll be learning more about EFAD's new president, Alvaro Lario. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcasts at ifad.org and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of November with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Alison Lecce, and the team here at EFAD, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.